It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Jason Robel and Whitney Lordson. I'll start off by saying that I feel a little vulnerable about the topic of this podcast that Jason doesn't even know what I'm going to mention yet. Well, I'm really curious because I felt like in our recent episode that came out about mental health and veganism, I felt like we got super vulnerable. I was listening back to that episode today. Me too. And I was like, damn. In my eyes, we hit, it seems like lately we've been hitting another level of like, let's just rip off all the band-aids and peel back all the layers and just really dig in deep. And it's been cool to feel that and meet you in that, Whitney. So I'm curious if you're feeling vulnerable or sensitive or emotional today, I'm curious where it's going to lead because it's been leading to some really deep, interesting places lately. And that's worth exploring for a moment before I get into this is that I think a lot of us are afraid of getting vulnerable. And I don't know if it was in that episode or if it was just something I was thinking to myself about how so often we try to present ourselves. Well, actually, I think this might have come up in one of the books that I'm reading. And if the listener hasn't heard me say this already, I'm I'm usually reading a bunch of books at once. And one of them recently was talking about how we just try so hard to avoid criticism. And that's something I can really relate to. I've done that so much in my life. And how it's like, we try to be very passive sometimes. We're passive aggressive. Some of us are aggressive. And there's all these different elements of of our communication styles. But a lot of us are really trying to tiptoe around things because it's scary to offend somebody or reveal something about ourselves that we don't think will be accepted. I definitely had that feeling too, Jason, when I listened back to that mental health episode you're referencing, which if you have not listened to it yet as a listener, we will link to that in the show notes of this episode which will be at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Or you can just go back and look for that mental health episode and veganism. I think it's called like when veganism and mental health collide or something like that. It sounds almost like one of those, like a trailer almost, a movie trailer. Yeah. When veganism and mental health collide, all (laughs) hell breaks loose. (laughs) It's not a clickbaity title, but it is very much like a, ooh, this could be incendiary. Right, right. And I think that was also (laughs) part of the vulnerability I felt was that people might make assumptions before they listen. And then if it didn't match their assumptions, they'd be offended. Or yeah, I definitely, I felt um, fear coming up for me of fear of being misunderstood and saying things the wrong way. And then Shortly after I was having those feelings, I was having a conversation with somebody about a like, quote, celebrity who I won't name, who was in the news today because she sang the lyrics of a song and said an offensive word that was part of the song and people were all up in arms and there's this whole debate. It's like, is she being a certain way just because she says a word that's in a song or does it count when we 
use a word in a context of a song? Does that mean that that's our own opinion or a word that we would normally use? And it was like this huge thing. And I just thought, gosh, it's, it's so fascinating how easily we can jump on board of making assumptions about somebody just because of a word that they said or how a sentence could be taken out of context and how people, you know, we've talked about this before, this cancel culture of, ooh, this person did something that offended me and that like five seconds of their lives, we should destroy them because if they just made a mistake, then then they can never take it back. And that probably says everything about them. I mean, this comes up so often with celebrities online. It's like, you find an old tweet that they posted and now suddenly you don't like them anymore because of one thing they said. Anyways, I get nervous about that happening to me, but I'm not going to let that rule my life because I don't know. I think that's just part of our culture. And if if people are going to be that judgmental of me or us as podcasters, then they're not really who I'm trying to, you know, I'm I'm not aiming to reach them in the first place. Right. But then, but then on the other side, I think the problem with being careful about what we say all the time is that every once in a while, instead of offending somebody, we actually will open up someone's mind and they may be temporarily offended, but later on realize that they misunderstood you. That happens too. And that's actually a big part of what I wanted to go into today. So should we dive in or did you want to say anything else about? I wanted to just say that I don't, know the secret to happiness per se. I feel like I'm getting clues along the way. Certainly, Whitney, you and I are doing this podcast and a lot of our content and teachings on the basis of being life experimentalists. So I don't know the quote, secret or keys to happiness, but I do know that trying to please everyone and trying to tiptoe around being too PC and too careful about our thoughts, feelings, and viewpoints is also not going to allow us to be happy or live a fulfilled life. So I think there's an interesting balance there of being fully ourselves, being fully self-expressed, feeling free to express whatever it is on our minds and our hearts without fear of retribution or being shamed or trying to please everyone. That's something that I'm increasingly focusing on is how can I more clearly and accurately express my truth and what's on my heart and mind without fear of, again, retribution, being shamed, or trying to please everyone. Because I think that that is a path to certainly unhappiness and some level of deep fracture in our collective psyche if we are constantly tiptoeing around and being too careful about what we say and what we think. Absolutely. Well, without you even knowing what I was going to bring up today, we are already starting to discuss it. So Mm. let me share what inspired me to start this conversation. And I'll first begin by saying I feel a bit vulnerable because I have this fear that, well, this is all coming from an email I received and a conversation that I had via email with somebody who's technically anonymous. They chose not to tell me their name. And part of me is like, did they make up this fake email account to reach me? Why aren't they telling me their name? So the good news is I would have kept them anonymous anyways, but I don't have to try that hard because I have no idea what this person's name is. I'm not sure off the top of my head if it's a male or female. For some reason, I assume it's a male, but I could be completely wrong. <laughs> so uh, I had this fear that they would feel uncomfortable with me sharing this, and I'm not going to share any details about them. I feel like this is an important conversation to have, and it's also interesting to me. But I have this fear that like they're going to be upset about me 
discussing this and I'm like, I have this desire to tiptoe around and not say anything that would offend them. Just like you were saying, Jason, you know, but then there's this part of me that thinks these are really important things to discuss. And I don't think there's anything in this context that I would perceive as offending this person, but that's actually a huge part of this email exchange. So Mm. instead of being vague, let me dive into it. So I received an email. Let's see. It was uh, a little over a week ago. And again, it was from an email I didn't recognize. And this person didn't say their name. But they did start off by saying that they're a fan of my YouTube channels and that being Eco Vegan Gal. And they were interested in buying my cookbook, which came out earlier in 2020 called The Vegan Ketogenic Diet Cookbook. And this person said as they were previewing the context of the book, they noticed that one of the dishes was called the Buddha Bowl. And this person started off by saying they felt hesitant to email me about this because they know it's tough sometimes to receive constructive feedback and didn't want me to take their perspective in the wrong way. And I was so grateful that they said that right off the bat because that immediately took down my defenses, right? And Jason and I can certainly relate to (laughs) receiving a lot of feedback over the years from people. And I would say in most cases when somebody is giving constructive feedback, it's more constructive criticism at best and typically criticism. (laughs) You know, like, yeah. Even if somebody doesn't mean it to be, they might come off in a way that I interpret as very critical and maybe condescending or rude or, again, not fully taking my feelings into consideration. Yeah, That's the norm for me. Yeah. And I just wanted to interject briefly before you dig into the meat of the email per se. I've mentioned this on a previous episode. I... If people in my life are aware of it, of course, a stranger on the internet or a person commenting on YouTube or Instagram probably wouldn't be aware. But if someone is listening to this podcast and wants to provide feedback, I prefer in my interpersonal relationships to reiterate what I mentioned in an episode dozens of episodes ago, that people approach me with, hey, I have some perspectives or feedback or viewpoints on X that you did. Are you open to receiving? And by, for me, someone taking that approach of getting the buy-in from me first, like you said, Whitney, I'm able to drop any sort of preconditioned reactive responses or defensiveness that may come up for me, which is apt to, as opposed to when people launch into criticism, judgment, or feedback without even asking my permission if I want to receive it, that's still something I'm working on. And it's still really tough for me because depending on what's going on in life and my level of sensitivity or struggle or how I'm feeling emotionally that day, there are times where I just simply am not receptive to feedback. I don't want to hear it. It doesn't mean I don't want to hear it ever. It just means in that moment, I'm not ready or willing to receive it. So for me, I think one way that this may not be for everyone, but for me, I'm trying to be mindful of in my interactions is asking a person, hey, are you open to receiving my viewpoint, perspective, and feedback on this thing? And really getting the buy-in first. I'm trying to be more mindful of that because that's how I prefer to be engaged with. Absolutely. And I think that's an important thing to bring up. In this context, I wonder, like, I feel like I would almost rather somebody tell me immediately because in the context of an email, having to wait for somebody to respond is also uncomfortable. You know, it's like 
do you ever get a text message from someone? They're like, hey, can we talk? And then if there's a gap between the next text or the phone call or whatever else, it's so uncomfortable. Actually, this just happened to me recently. I reconnected with an ex-boyfriend of mine and it was like the anticipation of waiting to have that conversation with him felt more uncomfortable than the actual conversation we had. Like once we started talking, everything was great. But <laughs> previous to that, it was so uncomfortable for me because I'm like, oh my gosh, like, is this going to be awkward? And what's going to come up? And how's he feeling? You know, like there was that whole unknown. So I get what you're saying, Jason. I guess I was reflecting on would I have liked for this person to have done that before they went into their feedback? Probably not because I got to read it in my own time and not have to wait. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. And like, it sounds kind of funny in the case of like a comment on a video or Instagram DM, like, hey, can I give you some feedback? And then like pausing, waiting, and then like putting it in the next comment. So yeah, it really depends on the context in which the feedback is coming, you know? Yeah, no, for sure. And I know that it's not necessarily appropriate or people aren't able to qualify or vet you for your willingness to receive. Of course, in the culture we're in, Twitter probably being the most high-profile example of this, people just launching into all kinds of criticism and hate and spam and all kinds of things. So I, I think that our digital culture now is conditioned, honestly, to have people launch into a diatribe of criticism, feedback, or even just hatefulness without qualifying anything. Because again, right. there's this notion that we forget, I think, a lot of human beings forget that there is a human being with feelings and emotions on the other side of that tweet, that comment, that piece of email. And I'm always trying to be mindful when I send a piece of information to someone else to remember that this is a human being with, like I said, sensitivities and feelings and thoughts and being mindful of how I'm being mindful of right communication and making sure that I'm speaking my truth and not trying to be intentionally hurtful or reactive to that other person. Absolutely. And as we'll explore today, sometimes you try to be delicate and that even comes off as hurtful to somebody. I mean, we, we're not in control of whether somebody feels hurt. We're not in control of how they feel how they react, how they interpret things. And there's so many different scenarios, right? It's like, are you giving the information via text or is it via voice or is it in person? And do you know this person? How are they feeling that day? I mean, there's so many variables. And I think part of this is is that dance we play whenever we're talking about something uncomfortable. And, and that's really the big theme of this podcast is this might get uncomfortable. Having a conversation might get uncomfortable. Giving feedback, expressing something that's important to you might get uncomfortable. So going back to the email that I received, they said that the title, they wanted to discuss the title of this recipe or the name of this recipe in my book called The Buddha Bowl. And they actually assumed that I was Asian, which as a little aside, <laughs> I know Jason would enjoy <laughs> because um, <laughs> I hope that doesn't come across as offensive at all. But throughout my life, a lot of people have thought that I was Asian and I have grown to find it such a compliment because I think Asian women are gorgeous. And when I was younger, I was like a little offended by that because I felt like I was being misinterpreted 
you know, uh, like that's not me. That's not my identity. So what's the term I want to use here? But uh, spoiler alert, I am not Asian. The farthest I go towards Asia is being like 25% Ukrainian, I think, or 25% like East European or something like that, according to 23andMe. But uh, no, I don't have any Asian heritage. And yet somehow I have features like that. And I actually found out that because I'm part Irish, part Ukrainian, and I think part Scandinavian, maybe some of those parts of the world have Asian features like in their eyes or their hair color or something like that. So I got to learn a little bit about my background over the years when people have assumed that I was Korean or Japanese or like Pan Pacific Asia, all of that. So anyways, if you were ever wondering about that about me, no, I'm not technically Asian. So this person thought that I was. And that's part of the reason that they wanted to have this conversation around the name Buddha Bowl. Before I get into this, Jason, since I've mentioned it a few times already, like where do you think this is going? And what comes up for you when you think of the term Buddha Bowl? Is this a term that you've used? Do you have that in your I book? I don't. Although there was a restaurant in Los Angeles that served an Asian fusion cuisine called Buddha's Belly. I don't know that they're still in business. I think that they were on Melrose or Beverly here in LA. But it's certainly the references to the Buddha are not anything new to the culinary world. I've seen that come up, not just in the context of this one restaurant or the recipe in, in your cookbook, Whitney, but I've seen it on occasion pop up in other recipe books of references to a, a Buddha bowl or, or you know Buddha stir fry or stuff like that. So it's not an uncommon reference. Where I think this is going, if I had to guess where the context of this email is going, I think that there's going to be something about cultural appropriation here where someone, and this seems to be just a very, very sensitive in our culture right now of people appropriating different music or art or styles of dress or culinary inspirations, which is to say the the way that I understand cultural appropriation is that one ethnic group will start to take from the style, the music, the art, the culinary influence of a completely different ethnic culture and then pass it off as their own. The thing that comes up to me, since I'm such a huge music fan and a musician for so many years, is remembering Little Richard, who passed away recently. And Little Richard, there were so many people sharing clips of him talking about how he was the progenitor of rock and roll, and he was so wild and flamboyant. And him basically saying, like, in his Little Richard way of just like, Elvis Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, who you think that got it from? And in a way, Little Richard had a point because he was doing boogie woogie and rock and roll and this wild, flamboyant, sexually charged style of music way before any of those, quote, white acts were doing it. And so that's a way, way roundabout way of saying, I think that the person who sent you this email is going to talk about the sensitivity of cultural appropriation. Am I right? You are right. You're correct, as you would say. Well, the email goes on to say that this person feels like calling a dish Buddha bowl is disrespectful to those who are Buddhist and come from such a culture. There would surely be an outrage if a dish was trivialized through Christianity and called the Jesus bowl. This person says they're not religious at all, although they surely think that cultural appropriation and disrespect of colors, people of colors, cultures, and religions 
are often found ubiquitous throughout mainstream, quote, vegan culture can deter people of color who would otherwise have possibly tried to be vegan. I can't tell you how many times a person of color has told me that being vegan is a white thing, and it's precisely books that contain dishes called such things as Asian salad or even worse, Buddha bowl, are prominent aspects of what most... Oh, wait, hold on a second. Are prominent aspects of what most know of mainstream vegan culture. I'm hoping maybe after possibly reflecting upon this topic that you could mention or talk about this in an upcoming video of yours. So actually, I didn't, I didn't read that line again till now. So perhaps this podcast episode will serve as uh, the replacement of a YouTube video. So that was the end of this email, but there's a follow-up to this. So I'll tell you how I responded to this. We can discuss it. And then the follow-up email is even more in-depth. And I think it's really interesting. Mm, okay. So my response was to thank this person for writing and sharing their feelings. I told them how much I appreciated the way that they approached it. It was very gentle and respectful. And then I went into some context, which I'll share for the listener of this episode as well. So first of all, I co-authored my book, The Vegan Ketogenic Diet Cookbook, with my, our, Jason and my mutual friend, Nicole, who has been on our show, actually. And I also wrote this in collaboration with a team of editors and publishers. The Nicole, the chef, she picked the name of the recipes and the editors and I approved them. Some of these decisions were not fully my role or within my control. However, I did not think anything of the name of that dish. It really never crossed my mind. And I think the reason being is that I'm not personally sensitive to things like that. And that's part of this conversation is that I think it's really tricky to communicate as human beings because sensitivity is so relative. So A, since I'm not Asian, nor would I call myself Buddhist, although I'm very drawn to Buddhist culture and lessons and there's so much about Buddhism that are incorporated into my life. It just, it's not something that I think about that much in terms of like an offense. I've gone through stages of my life of Christianity and I'm not that connected to the word Jesus, but I also don't think that I would be offended if somebody called something a Jesus bull. I think it would sound unfamiliar to me. I think part of the reason that the Buddha bull didn't occur to me as being offensive is simply because I've heard it so many times. To Jason's point earlier, I've seen it in a number of cookbooks and blogs, and I've seen it in restaurants, as Jason mentioned as well. I think actually like Cafe Gratitude or something like that's what I first think of is and generally a Buddha bowl is like a collection of different vegetables of vegetarian food. And it's often in Chinese restaurants, they'll call something a Buddha's delight. There's also a tradition of naming vegetarian dishes after the Buddha out of a sign of respect or honor, as well as some people use that to reference the big round Buddha belly shape. And then after receiving this email, I went and looked it up and, and Jason and I know a chef who I think that he considers himself Buddhist. He's, I certainly uh, think of him as being a Buddhist person. He has also used that recipe name on his website and he's somebody I really respect. So I guess like for me, not defending myself, but simply explaining my rationale when my book was going through review, it just never occurred to me 
It didn't seem to occur to the chef that I worked with, although she's also white. It didn't occur to any of the editors or people on the publishing team. But you know what? I'd be willing to bet most of them, if not all of them, are white as well. So the truth is, it's a bunch of white people writing a book, and maybe none of us are offended by things like that, right? So did it go through a series of asking different people from different backgrounds if any of this offended them? No. And maybe that would be helpful. Like Maybe that's something I'll think about in the future. But it's really tricky because to what lengths do we go to try not to offend somebody is my big question. And it's really interesting to me because when I published this book, I was afraid of people judging me and being offended because I was talking about eating a low-carb, high-fat diet, but it never occurred to me that somebody would be offended by a name of a recipe when it was never my aim to offend them in the first place. And I also wasn't the person that named it, but I did have some input on whether it was called that. It's really fascinating, I think, before I go on to the next part of this email, Jason, I'll pause because I think what's happened here is... It is an example of culture appropriation, right? It's sometimes people do not mean to take something from a different culture and call it their own or use it flippantly, right? It's that it, to me, it just doesn't have an energy behind it. And we have to ask ourselves is it our responsibility to examine every single word that we use in every different context? And I really think that this is a case by case basis, you know? I certainly don't want to offend anybody, but am I going to comb through every single word again and again and again and try to observe it from perspectives that I simply do not have? Or do I go and bring it through a series of different people with different perspectives to see how they feel about it? I think that'd be wonderful. But in the case of this book, as another behind the scenes, this is a really fast turnaround project. And to a certain extent, this was the publisher who is making a lot of these big decisions. And if they didn't decide to do that, I mean, this is also my first time publishing a book. I've never even run into these situations before. And again, I'm not trying to make excuses for myself. I'm simply saying that a lot of the times when these things come up, it's done out of complete ignorance. It's not an intention. And I think it's really interesting when you offend somebody and it wasn't your intention to offend them. But you also have to take that personal responsibility for your ignorance and say, hey, you know what? Never occurred to me. I didn't mean to do this to you. I am grateful that you brought this up for me to give me a chance to examine it and be more aware of how I could impact people. Yeah. No, so it's really tricky, I will say. I think this is one of the challenges of being a public figure or somebody who's publishing content is you're opening up yourself to a wide variety of people and you can easily accidentally offend somebody in so many different cases. To me, what comes up is, I think, first of all, being open and receptive to learning from other people. And in this case, obviously, I haven't listened to the rebuttal email or the response email or what the next exchange was between you two. But for me, if I were to receive that, if I were to be in your position, Whitney, I would be, first of all, like, I think curious, like, wow, I had no idea that this was a area of sensitivity. And my attention being brought to that, I think, first of all, would be 
even though it wasn't my intention to appropriate something culturally in terms of Asian cuisine or Buddhism, you know, to be apologetic and also be curious so I could learn more. Like that's the first, I think, stance where where I would be in my response. The other side of it too is interesting because in, in terms of a sheer creative perspective, if we're talking about naming recipes, right? So often, uh, I certainly prefer as a as a chef and nutrition educator and someone who's also written a cookbook and been in the food business for almost 15 years now, I prefer to name recipes as to what is the primary foundation of what's in those recipes, right? So in, instead of, um, I don't know, if I were to make like a tempeh with black garlic and sauteed bok choy and quinoa, I'd probably call it blackened tempeh with garlic, bok choy, and, and quinoa instead of like the rainbow dragon bowl or something like that. I prefer from a creative perspective not to get into like cutesy pootsy names per se or like try and get too creative. I try and just for me call it what it is. There are a few exceptions. There are a few in my cookbook that I named not exactly what it was or tried to get more creative, but generally speaking, I try and name things what they are. But that's not really the point of I think what we're digging into. I think the point of what you're presenting Whitney is what level of mindfulness and awareness and sensitivity can we bring to our creative endeavors, right? And to just riff on this a, a bit, because I want to obviously keep this going and get to the response that you had with this person who emailed you, I think it really comes back to intention. And if I think about any kind of creative endeavor, whether that's music or, or the culinary arts, I think that we can't escape our influences. In the sense that if I'm exposed to a certain level of music and listening to all these records growing up and being influenced for me by growing up with Motown and R&B and soul music and rock and roll, the stuff I like to listen to and the stuff I like to record, I can't escape being influenced by you know, Michael Jackson and Led Zeppelin and Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder and and if that stuff creeps in, could someone go, oh, you're trying to appropriate Motown or soul music? It's like I grew up from as early as I can remember listening to those vinyl records with my family. As opposed to, say, if a company or an agent or a manager or someone comes to you and says, hey, this stuff's really hot. Could you like learn to rap so we could make you a rapper? Like Even though you didn't grow up with it and even though you weren't influenced by it, there are so many tales from music history, again, just as one example of artists being convinced by a manager, an agent, a record label to, quote, do what's hot. And in those instances, I could see that being labeled as appropriation because you're you're doing something that's completely inauthentic to you, where you're doing it simply to make money, taking someone's art and taking someone's culture and using it just to make money, right? As opposed to something that moved you and touched your soul that you can't escape as an influence, something that's imprinted on you, that I think naturally is going to come out in your artistry and your creation. To me, there's a big difference between, yeah, appropriating something culturally just to make money and, quote, cash in versus something that's touched your soul that you can't help but be intertwined with your own artistry. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think that's a big part of the point here. And I think it really does come back to a lot of ignorance. I haven't actually talked to Nicole, the chef who created that recipe we're referencing and named it. But my guess, based on my experiences with her, is that it was a completely innocent thing. And she was simply used to calling it that. And it comes back to 
conscious language in general is that a lot of the time we are simply used to saying things or using terms for things without realizing that they could be offensive or realizing that that they're inappropriate. And I've had this experience so many times in my life. And it's a really interesting thing because maybe other people felt the same way that this person did who emailed me, but has not said it to my face because they're like, well, what's the point? Or, hey, you know, this bothers me, but I'm not going to speak up about it. So I want to commend this person for bringing this up because I'm grateful for this as a learning experience. It's really challenging because, first of all, I don't know what I can do at this point. It's not like it's a blog post or a social media post that I can go edit. (laughs) I could email the publisher and ask them for future prints of the book to change the name of the recipe. That's probably the best I could do in this scenario, but I can't change any books that have already been published. And there's a sense of like helplessness here as thinking, gosh, I made a mistake that I don't know how much I can change. That's a tough thing to navigate. Like when you do something, it's it's similar to what I referenced before with celebrities who said something, didn't realize it was offensive. They didn't mean for it to come across that way. Maybe they said something that they believed in the past and they no longer believe in the current day. They can't go back and delete it because somebody took a screenshot of it. Or even if they did delete it, you know, that doesn't mean that there's no evidence of it anymore. What do they do? What can they do but apologize for it and say that they won't do it again? Yeah, for sure. I'm certainly feel apologetic to anyone that I have ever offended. And um, it's just a tricky thing to do. It's, I mean, it's a tricky thing to navigate when even in our personal lives. And I've been in positions where I've said things and ruined friendships over words. And I wish I could go back and take it back or be explained. And I feel so misunderstood. And, you know, was it ever worth saying those things? No. But then it comes back around to like, how careful are we? And, and I think that the opposite side of this is like, Sometimes we become so afraid of offending people that we actually have trouble speaking and we have trouble making progress because we worry that anything that we say, just like we talked about at the beginning of this episode, anything we we say could be taken out of context or misinterpreted or offend somebody. And I know as a podcaster, it's it's incredibly tricky, you know, in every episode we're speaking for an hour plus on average, like, of course, there's a word that could come out of my mouth that I didn't mean for it to be said. And there's an opportunity to edit it, but it might not get edited out. And then it's out there in the world. And I mean, the amount of time things I've said in my YouTube videos and my blog posts and my social media on and on. Luckily, I have not said many things that have offended people that I know of. (laughs) I haven't been in like a cancel moment that I know of, but I guarantee there have been people that have offended and they've unsubscribed or unfollowed or whatever else, or in this case, decided not to buy a book of mine. And I'm not sitting here upset that this person didn't buy my book. It's not about, like you said, Jason, it's like, I'm not trying to like position myself in a way that people will buy things from like I don't of course I don't want somebody to buy something from them if I offend them. I wish more that I had the opportunity to shift things so that in the future more people will feel included, you know, it would feel like a fit for them. Like I want to create things that make people feel good. I want to 
create things that enrich people's lives. And that's my aim. That was certainly my aim of my cookbook, but it's not going to fit everybody. And moving forward, I think it's a great opportunity to just take some more, a little bit more time and be a little bit more aware in cases like this. I actually remember this came up years ago. Somebody I emailed me and I think it was because of the use of the word exotic. I had used that. And another time actually that comes to mind was I made a video about the benefits of getting massages. And in the video, I said I was giving like tips, like how to prepare for a massage. And I said, like, make sure that you shave your legs. And that's because I feel more comfortable getting a massage when my legs are shaved. And then somebody wrote me a comment on that video saying, like, you know, I can't believe that you said that. You're just perpetuating this culture that women have to shave their legs and there are plenty of women that choose not to. And and I remember thinking, wow, I never even thought that that could be deemed offensive, right? But this person had a great point. (laughs) So yes, I've certainly been in the position many times where I've been humbled and somebody has had explained something to me that got me a chance to think about it differently. But as I've said several times, there's also a part of me going like, gosh, how do I continue? How do I continue to create and move through this world without being afraid of offending somebody? I really think too, Whitney, what you're bringing up in terms of receiving this kind of feedback from a person, also their energy and their approach has a lot to do with, I feel like the level of of receptivity of actually, you know, taking the comment in. If someone's responding or reacting rather with an energy of like, you're an awful person, you're insensitive, I can't believe you did this. And again, it's really hard maybe even not impossible. It's really difficult to get tonality and pitch from a text, from an email, from a DM. That's one of the most difficult things I think about our era of digital communication is to receive something that might be emotionally charged. It's hard to read sometimes unless you know it's in all caps with a bunch of exclamation points. You can probably infer that that person is yelling or at least emotionally charged about it. But I think one of the most difficult things is to give or receive feedback digitally through a bunch of characters on a screen and somehow hope that the other person is going to receive your tone and your pitch and your emotional position without being able to have a phone call or a face-to-face conversation. That's so incredibly difficult. And I can't tell you the number of times that I have misinterpreted a person's intent and energy and emotional state based on a text or a DM because you don't get that. And it's it's incredibly dangerous and challenging in human communication to try and read into all that from a few characters on a screen. That's the first point I want to make. The second thing too is, you know, I think you wonderfully stated that your intention is to bring people together and be inclusive. And that's why obviously we're doing a whole episode on cultural appropriation and receiving feedback and opening our awareness to other people's perspectives. But there is that thing of, and I've talked to a lot of comedians about this, in fact, right? And how the nature of comedy has changed as an art form. Because now, and I think for a lot of good reasons, there's a higher level of sensitivity and awareness around mm, people being really offended and hurt by certain stances, words, or perspectives when it comes to our culture. And specifically in, in the, the context of stand-up, whereas I feel like 
perhaps in the 70s and 80s, certainly, after people like Lenny Bruce and George Carlin and Richard Pryor and those guys kind of busted comedy wide open into the mainstream, there was definitely a no-holds-barred aspect to very few topics being off-limits for stand-up comedians to discuss. I was watching a stand-up special like a week ago with Richard Pryor and Robin Williams from the early 80s, and some of the stuff they were talking about I was thinking as I was watching it and laughing, going, there is no way in hell that most comedians would touch this stuff with a 10-foot pole nowadays, because the firestorm on social media would be chaotic. So it's interesting to see that, again, how do we express ourselves authentically as artists and communicators when I feel like the level of awareness goes up? And Alan Watts talks about this too. Uh, we've mentioned him in the the Wisdom of Insecurity and some of his other Zen writings, to go back to a Zen Buddhist perspective, that his position is that as your conscious awareness grows, your level of receptivity and awareness to pain and pleasure is heightened as your awareness goes up. So I think there's a deeper lesson going on here is as we're growing our awareness to people's sensitivities with, and as we grow more sensitive, our receptivity to other people and our own pain and pleasure spectrum is heightened as a result. It does absolutely show a lot of our growth. I mean, one thing I'm reflecting on right now is how I would have responded to this email in different stages of my life. There have certainly been times in my life where this I would have been kind of like offended or taken aback or defensive. And one thing that these type of scenarios give us a chance to reflect on is is where we're at in our state of mind and how we've, quote, matured or what lessons have we learned that have brought us to this place where we can receive feedback like this and come to a place of apology or a place of humbleness or taking the time to really take information in without taking it personally, right? Sure, because absolutely. I think... Part of what I've struggled a lot with throughout my life and is a relatable thing is this desire to get it right. And sometimes we get defensive because we feel like, gosh, I'm trying so hard. I can't say anything. Everybody always takes it the wrong way. I'm so misunderstood. No matter what I do, somebody gets upset about it. You know, there's like on and on. And I think of someone like Kevin Hart and noticing how he was responding to what happened with him when somebody dug up an old tweet of his and he was supposed to host the Oscars and he was asked to apologize. It was like this whole back and forth. And and I really felt for him in terms of his struggle. Like, you know, there was phases where he felt really defensive. There were phases where he was apologetic. And you've seen a lot of public figures go through this. I mean, we can even look at someone like Donald Trump. It's like no matter what he does, somebody finds a flaw with him. Like every single day, if you wanted to, you could find a flaw with every public tweet or talk that he gives. And regardless of where you stand on Donald Trump, like, I mean, that's got to be immensely challenging. Like when every day your words are being taken apart and somebody is hurt by something that you, I mean, I cannot imagine that. Like, as I mentioned, I've only experienced this a few times that I can recall <laughs> in my 10 plus years as a content creator. I can't imagine going through this every single day of my career and the weight of that, the responsibility. And then you get to this point where you might have so much armor and you're like, screw it. I'm just going to say whatever I want because no matter what I say is going to bother somebody, I'll just go on. And I think as a content creator, 
it's also this feeling and Jason started off this episode on it's like, yeah, we have been opening it up ourselves. And there are moments where Jason and I seem like we don't give a fuck about how somebody interprets us. And, you know, we say swear words and those might offend people. And that's why our show's marked as explicit. And it's incredibly challenging at times. But then I look at people that I really admire in the podcasting world, like Joe Rogan. And I don't agree with everything that comes out of Joe Rogan's mouth. But on the grand scheme of things, I think he's done a really amazing work. He's brought in a lot of thought-provoking guests on his show. So I don't need to agree with everything that he says. And I have absolutely felt a little offended based on his stance on vegans or some of the things that he says about women. Those offend me, but I continue to have an open mind about him. And I guess my hope is that the same will be felt about me. But I also have to remember that I don't have control about how other people perceive me. I just going to do my best every day to express myself the best that I know how in that day, right? And know that I'm growing as a person. And something I said 20 minutes ago may have shifted. My consciousness is constantly evolving. We're like a river. We are constantly flowing and we are always a different person. And we're evolving and changing, even if we don't even realize it. Yeah, I think that's an important point, Whitney, is to honor the fact that people can grow and evolve and change. And I often feel that people who say the phrase, oh, people never change, are the ones who never do. Because if I look back similarly to what you hinted to at at my potential response to criticism or feedback when I was younger, and hadn't really learned how to deal with a lot of my anger or frustration or fear in life, which I still wrestle with. Certainly in my 20s and teens, I was a lot more reactive to things. And to honor people in their growing awareness, if they're dedicated to it, you know, if they're like, hey, I want growth, I want evolution, I want awareness, and they're consciously seeking those things out, then holding someone accountable in a punitive way for something they did years and years and years ago, first of all, is not allowing the the full honoring of their evolution and change as a person if they don't have that perspective anymore. And secondly, and this is a big hot button for me, and, and yeah, I'll, I'll go here. I think that it shows that there's a lot of work still to be done in terms of our level of forgiveness of each other in our society. And one of the things that I get triggered by often is certain people that are publicly extremely religious or spiritual and perhaps align themselves with a certain religion or spiritual set of principles that preaches forgiveness and healing and letting go that are not really apt to forgive people or let go. It's like, okay, well, can you also walk your talk? Because I think forgiveness is something that we collectively as human beings really need to get better at. We really do, because there still is this deeply, deeply held set of values where we've talked about how, you know, we don't bring people out into the public square for the guillotine anymore. We guillotine their reputation. We throw them under the bus and try and destroy who they are as a person, not physically kill them, but kill their reputation, kill their livelihood. We do that now in society rather than physically killing their body. And I think for us to deeply look at this tendency that if someone in earnest is apologizing for their lack of awareness and their lack of understanding how their actions or words might have inadvertently hurt other people, then 
why don't we take people for their word? If they genuinely are coming from a place of, I'm so sorry that I said this or did this thing, I didn't have the awareness or sensitivity I do now, why do we find it so hard to forgive people and let it go? That's a deeply disturbing part of human society that I still wrestle with is, why do we still feel the need, as you said, to to engage in this cancel culture and this public massive shaming and guillotining of a person's reputation, even when they apologize, sometimes wholeheartedly for their past actions? I find it really disturbing. Certainly a fascinating thing about our culture, but we also can't be too general because there's so many people that don't even express their feelings. It's like we often hear more from the critical people than we do from the praise. Or we have, as human beings, a psychological tendency to put more focus on criticism over positive feedback. And so the criticism often gets so magnified in our brains that we forget about all the positivity, right? And one thing I really love about this person who's been communicating with me about this is that they've continuously added in moments of like, I respect you and I care about the work that you're doing and I'm grateful for it. I just want to bring this to your attention. And they've really had this big aim to communicate. And I'm so grateful for that because it's helping me re-examine my language and think more just generally be more aware of myself and the ripple effect. And I want to go back to the email and the second email specifically that I received in which this person went a little bit more in depth after I responded to them. And so here are a few different gems within that long email that they sent me talking about this. So one of them is that their aim is to be cognitive and aware. And if something that they're doing is problematic in real ways for another or other groups of people, They're doing their best to reassess and redirect their actions and speech, even if it may not be offensive to them on a personal end. And I think that's really beautifully said is how can we examine, be aware and redirect our actions and speech as much as possible? I think that's a huge part of consciousness and compassion. And it's a huge element of being vegan. And it's a huge element of mental health is just simply being aware that that's a common thread through in most of our episodes. This person also said, being aware of what people of color and those who are uh, potentially people of color who, who might be vegan are dealing with and redirecting our actions and words accordingly. And I think part of their hope is that if white people are aware of how their actions are affecting people of color, that may give us a greater chance of opening up different cultures to veganism. And I mean, I certainly hope for that, right? But I also will say that because I'm not labeled as a person of color, and again, based on my heritage, my DNA, and and the color of my skin, I don't associate myself with that. And I don't know that much about that. I grew up in a white family. I grew up in a very white neighborhood. I'm surrounded by a lot of white people and there's a bias that I have and an ignorance that I have about different cultures as a result. And I can educate myself as much as possible, but it's a lot of work. It's a long road and I may never really be able to understand somebody from a different culture because we're in different cultures, right? Like it's like going to school and studying something like that. That is a lot of information that we're taking in and trying to interpret it. And 
when somebody's living something every single day of their life, it's just not that easy to understand it just by studying it, if that makes sense. The next thing I'll bring up is this person's point that for the dominant society, which they say is the Western countries, though typically somebody who's white like Jason and I are, although Jason is part Puerto Rican. I don't remember what percentage you are, Jason, when you did your 23andMe and learned a little bit about yourself on that end. Do you remember off the top of your head? Well, it's Puerto Rican and Spanish from my dad's side, which is about 40%. So my dominant ethnic background is not Latino, but 40% is pretty high. So, you know, do I identify as a public advocate for Latino culture? No, because I wasn't raised in a Latino family. My father was there and my father's family from Puerto Rico was there, but I when people find out like, oh, you're Latino. Okay, well, you don't like wave that flag. And I, and on this point, this is maybe a side topic because I want to hear the, the response from your letter, but I've had some really interesting interactions with people over the years of some people saying, oh, you need to like really champion Latino culture and being healthy and being plant-based and, and wellness because that's by and large, a lot of Latino ethnicities are not focused on health and wellness and eating well. And they're like, you could use your power for good to reach that. And I'm like, okay, well, I don't really speak Spanish all that well. And I wasn't necessarily raised in a heavily Latino culture. Part of it was, but once my dad left and my mom and dad broke up, a lot of that Latino heritage went with my dad leaving the family. So it's been an interesting kind of seesaw for me over the course of my life because people assume that I'm white. And then when they find out I have a very high percentage of Latino blood, they're like, oh, well, you should blah, 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 blah. And that doesn't feel right to me. Because then I kind of feel like I'm appropriating that culture that I don't really identify with because I wasn't raised with it. I know that's a sidebar, but you kind of touched on a hot button that's gotten a lot of interesting feedback over the years, Whitney, from other people. Absolutely. I think that's an incredibly important part of this conversation. And part of me bringing this up is that, again, like I can't study my way to fully understanding somebody of a different culture because I have never lived that culture. Right. I mean, if I immersed myself in it, perhaps maybe if I went and lived somebody where else, lived with a family of a different culture. But again, I'm already at a certain age point. What about the rest of my life where I haven't experienced that? So I don't know if I could ever quote catch up and fully understand something if my full life has not incorporated that. Does that make sense? Like, and even if it's in your blood, it's like me trying to to say, well, because I'm part Irish, like I understand Irish culture. No, like, or part Ukrainian, like I barely know anything about Ukrainian culture. I just happen to have that background because of where my grandparents were from, you know, but I can't like pretend to know what it is to live that way. Yeah. And I think this doesn't preclude us from having the awareness of the sensitivity and concerns, even though we don't have a direct experience of it. It's the first to say that I have no idea what it's like to fear for my life from wearing a hoodie walking down the street of my own neighborhood, right? And there are people in this world, based on what has been happening in our society, that say for an African-American man, right, of like, having a fear for their life. And I've talked to some mutual friends of ours about this who are African-American of like, hey, I don't know what that's like in my life 
to be afraid to walk or run down my own street with a hoodie on, right? Like that's a genuine fear and for good reason based on a lot of the things that have happened. But can I do my best to have a sensitivity and understand and use my privilege, even though I have no direct understanding of that concern and that fear? How can I best leverage an awareness and a sensitivity to assist you and assist the policies and the conversation in our culture to have a growing awareness of compassion and unity and concern for other ethnicities, even though we don't have a direct experience of it. I hope that makes sense of like, I can't know what that's like to live in that kind of fear based on my skin color and what people identify me as. But if I can have a sensitivity and awareness and somehow help to shift the cultural narrative, I want to know how I can do that. Yeah, this is starting to remind me of the times where people got really offended about Thug Kitchen. And for the listener, Jason and I have known Matt and Michelle who wrote Thug Kitchen for many years. We're not as close to them right now as we were at different points, but we have certainly gotten to know them fairly well. And I remember feeling defensive about them because people were attacking them for using the term thug and using terms and lingo in their books and in their social media. It really like brought up a lot of strong feelings from different cultures and people posting about it in interviews and all. Remember that, Jay? I mean, how could you forget? But but I I just remember feeling very defensive and it's also giving me a chance to reflect on my own reactions to things. It wasn't even about me, but I felt defensive because I knew Matt and Michelle and I felt defensive because I thought that they were doing something really great for veganism and I still stand behind that. But through this conversation, I'm reflecting on the fact that I don't know what it's like to be somebody of a different culture that feels offended by that. And I know people that were Latino, I felt were offended. Some people were offended that were African American. And it was bringing up a lot of strong emotions. And, and in hindsight, I feel a little weird about being like defensive about that because who am I to try to defend somebody when I don't understand the other side that's offended by it? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I also think it goes back, there's other elements to this in the sense that as friends and colleagues of ours, I think there was a natural tendency to be like, well, we know them and we know that they're not doing this to be inflammatory or intentionally appropriating cultural language or Afrocentric language. From my understanding, you know, it was like, okay, this criticism isn't necessarily not just the criticism, but the anger and the vitriol to me was not warranted back then. Cause I was like, well, I know them and I know that they're not doing this from a place of intentionally appropriating or being inflammatory or being disrespectful. But on the other side of the coin, there's this part where it's like, okay, what is their intention behind it? You know, were they doing it to be humorous, right? Like we go back to stand-up comedy or comedy and think like, okay, if someone does an impression of someone on a stage that is of a different ethnicity, depending on the words and the context and the situation they're painting in their stand-up routine, does it automatically mean because I do an imitation? And you know me, Whitney, I do voices and imitations all the time. Could it be that someone could go, you should never, ever imitate a British person. That's so disrespectful. You should never imitate an African-American person. You should never imitate a, a French person. I do accents and characters all the time. 
if I examine my heart, am I doing it to be damaging or inflammatory or detrimental? Absolutely not. But I could see that if someone were to bring it to me and say, hey, that's highly offensive, I would want to know why. You know, I would be curious as to like, hey, what about this is potentially offensive? So to go back to the Thug Kitchen thing, I, I agree with you, Wade. At the time, I think I was perhaps not as sensitive to the concerns other people in our community were bringing up because I was like, well, I know Matt and Michelle, and I know they're not being dicks about this. I know they're not doing it for ill-begotten means. But now I can understand that if someone was feeling triggered or slighted or disrespected, I think it behooves us to bring humanity closer together, honestly, on a biggest level, to not be dismissive and defensive, but really listen to each other. I mean, no matter what the ultimate outcome is, just to sit down in a non-reactive state to listen to one another. I think that's the very first step. Absolutely. And that brings me back to some other points that in the email that I thought were really enlightening. The person said that there's no connection and oftentimes no knowledge of the significance, struggle, history behind the use of a dish and is used in a flippant, trivial manner by those who often think of it as a kitschy slash catchy bowl of the day. And in doing so, it is trivializing a person of color's culture and thus reinforcing unequal power dynamics. And that to me is where I really am starting to understand this person's point here is that it is when I say like the use of the word Buddhist bowl, Buddha bowl or whatever, it is like, oh, just a word. Like to me, it's just a name. And yeah, I know what a Buddhist person is. I'm not Buddhist. So who am I to use that word? A. And B, it's not just a name. It feels like a name to me because it's familiar. But there is that importance of the personal responsibility for understanding that this could be perceived as trivializing somebody because I'm using it as a catchy term. And that in itself could be perceived as reinforcing unequal power dynamics. And I think that's probably why some people were triggered by Thug Kitchen because it was two white people using terms that felt very associated with different cultures that they were not. And they became so successful because of the use of those terms, which in essence gave them more power. And that's the power dynamic, I think, is where I'm starting to feel like, wow, this actually is very important to me because I am passionate about equality. And I also know that I was born into privilege and we've used these terms privilege before. And just to acknowledge them, you know, the privilege of that being a certain color of your skin gives you in certain different parts of the world. That's a privilege. If your skin color is perceived as dominant or powerful, like that's something you didn't have a choice over, but it is a privilege. The privilege to grow up in a family that had money or that gave you a certain education that lived in different parts of the country that surrounded you with things like giving you different advantages gives you a different dynamic compared to other people. And I think it doesn't help us to be defensive about those things. What Jason, I think you are so helpful in bringing up here is that it is important for us to just listen to other people and we may not fully understand or agree with them. 
we may not even be able to fully understand somebody. But just simply listening and trying not to react or defend ourselves, I think, is a really important step forward. Yeah, I also think this idea of power dynamics goes into the power of coded and conscious language and the meaning and how we can create new meaning around words. And, you know, to me, one of the, I go back to music because it's one of my great loves. And one of the biggest genres of music that has been talked about in terms of power dynamics is hip hop and rap music. And rightfully so, because I think, and I've talked about this, the, the parallels of specific movements within music coming from disillusioned, disenfranchised, lower income, impoverished groups of people, specifically looking at where hip hop and rap music came from. You look at, you know, Queens and Bronx and those parts of New York City, you look at Detroit, you look at Chicago, you look at groups of disenfranchised, lower income African Americans taking this style of music and in the eighties it rising to what eventually now became, you know, one of the most successful genres in music history. I mean, it's hip hop changed the world. But you know, I remember reading some really in-depth articles years and years and years ago about the use of the N-word in hip-hop culture and people being curious why, you know, why is the N-word being used so colloquially and why is it being used in this context? And for some artists, you know, in back in the day, especially in the 80s, was this idea that we are taking a word that has been encoded with a ton of negativity, like negative, hateful energy around it. And we are reappropriating it and reusing it and recontextualizing it in a way to say, like, instead of, you know, hey, brother, what's up? You know, using the N word in a context that is a completely different energy and coding than it was used for at the beginning, which was a completely derogatory ethnic slur. And again, it really depends on the context and who's using it and why they're using it. And I think this probably goes back to, and I don't want to guess, but the celebrity you brought up in the beginning, you know, you look at the power dynamics of this word and the African-American community taking this word, recontextualizing it and reusing it in a way that does not have the hateful, shameful, detrimental energy that it was used for hundreds and hundreds of years. And then you can understand this point this person's making in your email about the power dynamics of certain words that we use and why it can be offensive. I mean, it makes complete sense. That was just one example that brought up for me is like, yeah, people are reclaiming or using certain words in a very specific way. And when we, who have not faced perhaps the stigma or the pain of those words in certain ways and don't have an understanding of the depth of why they're using those words, you can understand why people would get pissed off about it for sure. Right, exactly. And this is so fascinating to reflect on. And again, I'm just so grateful for the opportunity to explore it because taking each of these different perspectives and talking about them and reflecting on them in this conversation right now and then beyond this is all it'll continue to be in my psyche and and the realizations that I can have as part of this is is really important because it doesn't get brought up in my life often. And so when it does, it, it's just a really great opportunity. And I hope that the listener is experiencing something similar, having some aha moments. And we certainly invite you to be part of this conversation with us as well. If you have any other points that you'd like to make as a listener, you can do so by going to our website, which is wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Every single episode of our show has show notes 
and a comment section at the bottom. And you can join in there. You can comment on social media. You can send us direct messages privately. You can email us. We love hearing from you. And hopefully this episode has been an example of how we try to explore and give respect to people that write us. And we invite all different perspectives and conversations here, no matter how uncomfortable they may be, because we got to own up to to our name. <laughs> yeah, it's a delicate thing, all of this. And I think part of it is that there's like a little bit of an arrogance or an ego, like, hey, I can say whatever I want. We have freedom of speech. And you don't own that word. Nobody owns words. Nobody gets to say something. You know, it's like there's this, for lack of a better word, arrogance sometimes that we can feel and that like we want to be able to say whatever we want to say. But our words do have a responsibility. And we have to really be as conscious as we possibly can. And I hope that we will also simultaneously be very mindful of how we interpret other people's words in their context, right? So the respect that we would like given to us, we need to extend to other people and open up dialogues with them, just like this person did with this email. It's ultimately a dialogue. And being unattached to the results, I think, is the big key here. We all want to be understood. It's really challenging to be misunderstood. There's a lot of fear tied into being misunderstood. And that's where the defensiveness can come in, is trying to force somebody to understand us. I think having an ongoing conversation about things is really important where each party, each person, each perspective is given respect and given the the time to be heard and doing our best not to fight for something, but simply to just let it go and say, this is how I feel right now. And I'd like to hear how you feel. And I'd like to try my best to understand you. And then going back and forth. And sometimes we may feel understood and sometimes we won't. As I said earlier, I've been in all different types of situations. I've had people unsubscribe from my YouTube channel. I've lost friends over conversations and felt completely misunderstood in both cases. And there have also been beautiful times where I got into a really uncomfortable conversation and felt like I would never feel understood or that I would never understand somebody else. And somehow we worked through it and it was a beautiful thing. The key is not to be attached to either. Yeah, there's a wonderful phrase. I don't know who it's attributed to, but the phrase is, do you want to be right or do you want to be happy? And that's pedantic because I don't think happiness is the goal, especially in this context. But I think a better reimagining of that phrase would be, you know, do you want to be right or do you want to have equanimity and peace? Because to me, it doesn't guarantee if we are understood and fully communicated that we will have equanimity and peace. Yet, I think that when people come to a, a very sensitive, uncomfortable conversation like the one we're having around cultural appropriation and the use of language and identity and sensitivity and respect around all of this, is for me, if I'm fixed to a position of, I want to be able to say whatever I want, whenever I want, and I don't care about how other people feel about what I have to say, that to me feels like a very infantile adolescent position. I'm going to say whatever I want. I'm going to do whatever I want. It just feels like a very immature perspective from my perspective. Whereas I think there's a balance that can be achieved of feeling free to express oneself 
while maintaining the aim of equanimity and peace and understanding with other people that are radically different from you. And it's one of those things too, where I've opened my mind a lot to around, you know, to, to a lot of this, of the sense of I'm genuinely curious to learn from people who have different ethical, political, scientific, sociological perspectives than I do, and certainly feel way more stimulated by getting those different perspectives. It's interesting too, if you, you, we talked about the upbringing, Whitney, of me growing up in, on one side, a Latino family, and the other side, an Eastern European family. And I remember the neighborhood I grew up in Detroit, just as an example, right? was very unusual because the neighborhood we lived in in Detroit, the next door neighbors that we had, this was like the 80s, mind you. It was a mixed race gay couple that lived next door to us. Now, in the 80s in Detroit, that was unheard of, a mixed race gay couple living next door to us. But for me, I think by virtue of, and not just them as a solitary example, but growing up in a neighborhood that had African-American families and Middle Eastern families and white families, I had kind of an experience being young of being exposed to and having relations with people that were different from me. And I'm sure that for me, that definitely shaped my life perspective, you know, as opposed to just being around people that were exactly the same as me, people of different sexualities and ethnicities and backgrounds. I'm really grateful for my mom, first of all, for fostering that kind of openness in me, but also having the environment that I was in, which again, in the 80s in Detroit, that was very unusual. But I reflect on that now. And I think, for, at least for me, I guess my point here is that my curiosity to understand other people and not be right, but learn and be open and receptive, I think was probably fostered by that, the environment that I grew up in, you know? Absolutely. And that's such a gift. And I think the more that we can be open-minded and open-hearted and expose ourselves to other people, even as I said earlier, we're not hoping that we'll fully understand somebody. But I think the key is like, can we be more accepting and conscious? It's not about can we completely understand somebody because we may never actually be able to. And I think it, you know, it reminds me too, Jason, of how you've been so committed to feeding the homeless. And that's going outside of your comfort zones. And that that's taking you to be around people that are in a completely different state of living than you. It's not necessarily a cultural thing, but it's exposing you to the realities that other people are experiencing versus staying in your bubble and being so focused on yourself and your problems with while being ignorant to other people's challenges and experiences. Another conversation on its own, but similar in a way. It's like, what are we exposing ourselves to? And why are we doing that? I think ultimately comes down to safety. We associate being around like-minded people, people that look like us, think like us, act like us, have the same experiences. That feels safer to us. That's more of the known. That's more comfortable versus exposing ourselves to things that ultimately are about uncertainty. And uncertainty is very scary to a lot of people. It feels very threatening. We think that because we don't know what something is, that that might mean that we won't survive in that scenario. And a lot of the times making that assumption is incorrect. 
just because something is unfamiliar doesn't mean that it's bad for us or hurtful to us. And we have to push ourselves out of that comfort zone in order to experience that. And that takes a lot of awareness. I think it's just human nature. We have been conditioned in a lot of cases to stay safe and stay familiar and to avoid change, even though change and uncertainty is all around us. And I know that during COVID-19, it's brought up a lot of those feelings and it's showing us that maybe the world maybe isn't as safe as we thought it was. And we have to face that reality. And as a result, maybe we'll be more compassionate to other people and more aware and more willing to acknowledge those people. And just to summarize this email, I love this one line here specifically about vegans, which was one of the themes in this email. This person that wrote it said, if vegans from the dominant society and those outside the race of Asians are creative slash innovative enough to find ways to recreate, reinvent omnivore slash carnivorous dishes, then I think it's more than reasonable and easy enough for them to create titles that are less problematic and isolate people of color from calling themselves vegan and wanting to be vegan. And so that shows me the ultimate aim here is that this person really believes that it's important to be inclusive if we want more people to try something like veganism and for us to acknowledge when we are part of a dominant society and to acknowledge the people that are outside of that and know that we have a lot of power. I think, I hope that we have power regardless of if we feel dominant or not. But whatever we do have, it's important for us to be creative and do our best to be mindful of how our words have an impact on others, whether it's titling a recipe in a vegan book. You know, I never would have thought that one recipe would cause somebody to feel excluded from reading my book. And that is sad for me to hear and acknowledge. But it is the truth of the scenario. And the good news is, is that raising my awareness will ultimately help me include more people. And that's really important to me. And this whole conversation is showing me how important that is and how complicated it is, too. And it's not an easy solution. I don't think that there's a right or wrong way to talk. It's just that sometimes we say things that affect people in a way that we didn't intend to. And we can take that personal responsibility to be very mindful of our words and do our very best throughout our lives to be inclusive to other people so that everybody feels as equal as they possibly can, even if that seems really challenging, even if there is a a dominant society, a dominant culture, a dominant race, whatever that means. I just certainly would love to see more equality and invite that in. And, you know, I think about that with our show too, Jason. Like, frankly, like we could do a better job of bringing different voices in. I mean, (laughs) I often focus so much on, on balancing the male and feminine voices that come in. But, you know, like we need to bring people in from different backgrounds as well. Like we, I mean, let's be frank, we have a lot of white men on our show and that wasn't purposeful. It's not like we were thinking that. It's just that we've been drawn to certain white guests. But 
we've only had a few people. I mean, not that many people on our show that have even been women, let alone non-white people of color. This is a good observation, Whitney. It's a really good observation. And, and it's interesting because we do have people in our friend circle and certainly circle of colleagues that are of different ethnic backgrounds and are of different sexualities. And to your point, I don't think it's been an intentional choice to exclude anyone. It goes back to the theme, I think, of this episode, which is awareness, which is like, oh, I, wow. Because as you're saying it, it's so obvious, yet it obviously makes me want to continue to reach out to more diverse people because that certainly fits in the idea of bringing people out of suffering, growing our awareness, having a deeper understanding of one another, of course. And so as you say that, it's not like a duh moment, but it's like, oh, right, exactly. Like it completely fits with our ethos. The question is, is why hadn't we, and it's not that we didn't think of it earlier, but why has it taken us so long to go, oh, we should bring in people that we know already with different perspectives and cultures and experiences. You know, it's almost like there's this subconscious program or script that runs us in life that once we become aware of that subconscious program or script, then we have the opportunity to take different action, right? So once my awareness expands, it's not just, yay, I'm aware of something. It's like, okay, well, what action are we going to take? So I just want to thank you for publicly saying that because it's like, yeah, that feels right to expand this and bring different people on. Well, I look forward to that. And I will just say one more time that I'm really grateful to have this conversation. I'm grateful for the author. I'm going to put in the show notes two things that they sent me. One was a podcast episode. I think they said it was recorded by Asians talking about Buddha Bowl. I have not listened to it yet, but I will. And I will also put it in the show notes at wellevator.com. There's also a video related to this topic, a YouTube video that I will link to. And anything else that we think of, we will add there anything related, any any people or books that we've referenced today will be in the show notes if you want to explore this more. And like I said earlier, we invite you, the listener, to be part of this conversation. We invite uncomfortable conversations because we want to transform the uncomfortable into comfort. Or at the very least, we just want simply to be okay with being uncomfortable. And again, you can do that publicly or privately. Publicly would be through the blog comments on our website or social media comments. And privately would be through a direct message. We are at Wellevator, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. You can find us and you can email us at hello at Wellevator.com. We read every single email. And we'll do our best to write you back as soon as possible. And you may even be part of a future episode. We will keep your name private so that your privacy is protected there because that's really important to us. That being said, we appreciate you being in this conversation, this ever-evolving conversation around growing our awareness, growing our compassion, and growing our understanding because over everything else, we do believe that we are one human family, a very diverse, unique, interesting human family with many different experiences and histories and dreams. And to us, it is our intention to open this up in all kinds of ways to understand one another. So we always love to hear from you, as Whitney said, and uh, you can follow along with us on social media 
We're on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and Pinterest. And again, any topic matter, any emails, any communication that you want us to discuss here on the show, we always, always welcome those conversations. So thank you, dear listener, for getting uncomfortable with us yet again. And we will see you soon with another episode. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.